welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 73 movies, one cage. This is episode 22, 1993's Deadfall. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And there are a ton, a ton of cage connections in this movie, starting with the most important one, co-written and directed by Nicholas's brother, Christopher Coppola. It is a family affair once again. It's not an Uncle Francis picture, but it no. is it is a brother picture. It seems like it's pretty much everybody else in their family. Well, not even everybody else, because there's no domino. But we have Christopher Coppola, Cage's brother, who co-wrote and directed this, who apparently started his filmmaking career as a little kid filming Super 8 films of Nick Cage. Hmm. I would love, love, love to see these home movies of Cage probably just hamming it up for his brother. Like, that would be the best. Yeah, I have a feeling we're going to have to wait for his, like, Oscar memorial for those, you know, <laughs> when he gets his very special award at the age of 99. So we're just, we have to wait another, like, 50 years for that, or four, 49 years, but we're, we're getting close. Cage's aunt, Talia Shire, is in this. Yo, Adrian. Cage's, yo, Adrian. Cage's brother, Mark Coppola, is in this, as some role we're not exactly sure. There's just a whole bunch of Cage connections familial and otherwise here's a here's a sort of a sidetrack has he ever been in a movie with jason schwartzman because i mean he's related to him too no not that i'm aware of no not at all no. that's sort of surprising right because there's so many cage connections in terms of family uncle francis ones and this movie in particular that it's sort of weird that these two prolific actors have never worked together yeah i would totally love to see them play father and son that would be the ultimate a couple other cage connections in this charlie sheen pops up toward the end of this movie, and he was uncredited, just like Cage was in Never on Tuesday. And I think that this is pretty much confirmation, or it could be seen as confirmation, that Adam Rifkin, who directed Never on Tuesday, must have an in with the Coppola family or something. I feel like the Estevez family and the Coppola family are friends, and Adam Rifkin knew somebody from one of those two families, and that's how he was able to get Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen and Nick Cage for Never on Tuesday. Yeah, that's a pretty good call. Um, and maybe they just continued that friendship. But, yeah, it's just, you know, it's another connection. There's a couple other actors that are also in a couple other Cage movies. Peter Fonda is in this. He will return not for a while, but he'll return in Ghost Rider. And then also in The Runner, which just came out this year. And then Michael Bean, the star of this movie, will return for not only The Rock, but also sort of a cage connection a little bit he'll pop up in grindhouse he's in planet terror cage is in a trailer between planet terror and death proof but there's two other people in addition to the coppolas there's peter fonda and michael bean who show up in a couple cage movies a little bit later in his career i definitely count the michael bean grindhouse connection <laughs> if we're watching it i'm counting it and we'll count uh, it too, then. and i totally can't wait for for the uh, for the rock because honestly like i was like where has michael bean been he kind of i saw him in aliens then he disappeared and he popped back up in the rock so can't wait to talk about that so the, the whole movie to introduce deadfall it's important to know what the catchphrases the taglines are on the dvd case on the dvd sleeve it says trust no one and then on the dvd case itself it says you won't know who to trust what to believe or where to turn and i think those are important to talk about because 
this movie is just filled with double crosses and twists and turns. Even when they don't necessarily make sense, they're just there. They're pretty much there just to give entertainment value to this movie. Yeah, I came up with an alternate title for this film. I called it Griftville because everybody in this movie is like a confidence man and a grifter and, you know, always working on their game. And, you know, there's multiple cons going on. Uh, James Coburn, who's in this film in the special features, put it very well. And he says, um, we're doing a sting and we're being stung at the same time. Ooh, so, ooh. yeah, it's uh, there's a lot happening here. But can the movie keep up with itself? That's a question I wonder. Also in the special features, one of the writers of this film says that deadfall means a hidden trap. And there are plenty of hidden traps in life. Like, basically, none of these characters are safe. Michael Bean's character, he doesn't have all the answers, he doesn't have all the pieces. He is basically a patsy for everybody in this movie, unknowingly so. Yeah, right from the start, um, Michael Bean, who plays Joe, uh, named so because he's the average Joe. Things go awry. It starts with uh, Khan taking place, I would say. Would you say? like We kind of start in the middle of this Khan going down, and, and Michael Bean delivers some awesome, well, let's just say he delivers some voiceover. Most people like to think they have some degree of control over their lives the truth is we're all subject to the influence of others those who appreciate this can make a lot of money from those who don't but any small-time grifter who ever dealt off the bottom of a deck can tell you that what I can tell you about is the price one pays for peddling confidence how every mark you fleece takes away another piece of your soul and what happens when you try to pick up the pieces and it uh, starts to set the tone for what we're in store for. We're sort of thrust into the middle of a con. It's really, like, this movie's not well made. So let's get that right on the table right from the start. It's not really well made, and so we're in the middle of a con, and it's not immediately clear what's happening. There's two guys, Michael Bean and this old guy, and they're going to a meetup in an old warehouse to swap a suitcase full of cash for a suitcase full of cocaine. Yeah, and the con would be to say that the guy they're doing business with is wearing a wire. They have like a fake shootout to scare off the money man, and the money man will leave his suitcase behind, and everybody gets up, con well done. Or was it well done? That's the real question in this movie. So the way that the con looks to the old man with the suitcase full of money is that he is going to make this exchange, and a whole bunch of cops come out. And it's sort of, it, it is genuinely pretty exciting in the beginning of the movie, because you think it's this bust, but then as soon as the man drives off scared, he leaves everything behind, all the cops start cracking up. You, you're trying to figure out if these are like crooked cops, or if it's a con, or really what's going on. The scene quickly turns dire as you realize that the old man, Joe's father, who was the guy in the other, on the other end of the transaction, was shot with an actual bullet instead of blanks, and is apparently killed. Like, the, this this con went wrong. Yeah, Joe and his dad, they're sort of like Paper Moon. I don't know if you've seen Paper Moon, um, but it's like about a father and daughter con artist. They're sort of got that racket going. He's raised his son to be the pretty boy in a con, right? The guy you could sort of open up to and tell everything to. Um, yep. This was supposed to be like a big score for everybody, but uh, someone, or somehow, Joe's gun got switched and he accidentally shoots his dad for real instead. Instead of for fake. And so not only did the con go wrong and Joe missed out on this massive score, but he was the one, he was the reason why his dad was killed. So he's from the get-go, from the first scene of this movie, 
racked with this guilt that he basically killed his father, even though he doesn't think he screwed up, it's because of one of his screw-ups at some point. Then Joe's uncle's number one guy is Peter Fonda, and surprisingly, he plays a character named Pete, and (laughs) (laughs) Pete comes to him and is like, you should go after, like, your dad's final words to you, which were, you know, my brother, my brother has, like, the cake or something like that. Like, he said some cryptic words to, to Joe as he was dying about his brother, and Pete is like, you know, you should, like, follow up on that and, like, clear your head and go to L.A. Yeah, he gives him, like, a little note and a little key for a storage locker at a Greyhound bus station. And he goes there and just sort of uncovers these clues and heads west, just like in Never on Tuesday, just like in a whole bunch of these movies. He's going west to California to get answers, to find his uncle, and to figure out what his dying dad's last words really meant. And so when he when he gets to L.A., he finds his uncle sort of like, he sort of knows where to find his uncle, right? And it's this market. It's sort of like this out or pavilion of some kind. It looks like sort of a food court <laughs> to me. He sort of walks around by like a coffee shop, a key, like these little kiosks, and he's asking if anyone knows his uncle. And everyone's sort of like, "Whoa, what do you want to know? What are you What are you looking for him for? Like, you know, who are you to this guy?" And as they're doing that, they're this group of what we find we soon find out are sort of you know this ring of con artists are moving a note around. And it's a very convoluted, complicated way to get a note from one guy to another. Somebody pays for a pretzel with a, with a $20 bill and hands this note. That note then makes its way into a coffee cup. That coffee cup then gets put on a table. The guy takes that note and puts it in a newspaper. It's sort of indicative of the whole movie. Like, why is everything so complicated? I mean, I guess it's to show that everybody here is involved in the con. But it seemed like a very needlessly complicated way to move this one piece of paper around. Yeah, it was very strange. It's almost like this is where all the local con artists hang out and sort of <laughs> they just practice for no reason, I guess, just to, to keep up on their game. But, but I, I also <laughs> think it's just to show us that Michael Bean's character can see a con going on, you know? Like he sure. spots it immediately and he's like following the con as it's going down. So like we're looking at this guy like, all right, like you can't like you just he's unconnable, right? Like, he just sees all the angles. I like that, unconnable. He pulls over a waiter and says, hey, you want to make a quick 20 bucks? The waiter goes to ask about his uncle, and from behind Michael Bean, we just hear someone playing with a deck of cards. And who is it but our man, our boy, Nick Cage, reminding me, flashing me back to Zondali Mm -hmm. when he was the magician in that bar, when he did that magic trick. In this, he's always got a deck of cards with him, and he's always a magician who says, pick a card, I'll know what card it is. Pick a card. I don't think so. You don't think so? <laughs> yeah, that's not very sociable behavior. Go on, pick a card. Look, I'm a little busy right now. Why don't you take your game someplace else? Busy at the market. I'll tell you what. If it's a high card, I'll tell you who I am. And if it's a low card, I'll tell you who you are. Is that a deal? And later in the movie, we find out that he's just carrying around a deck of jokers, <laughs> which I love. Like, it's such a perfect character choice for him that it's he's this crazy, crazy guy. Whether you're talking about Joker in terms of comic relief for the movie, or Joker as in Joker from The Dark Knight, or Batman, just this crazy lunatic, off the hinge, and just overall manic, whatever connotation of Joker you want, this fits Cage to a T. Yeah, that's a great call. It's almost as if he's 
is he playing his interpretation of the Joker in this? Now that you say that, uh, next time I, if I ever rewatch oh. it, I am going to. Be- oh no, you will, because this this movie yeah. is at least at least rewatch the first hour because the first hour of this is worth watching over and over and over again. His character in this movie is a psychopath, like psychotic, yes. like everything that comes out of his mouth is like something like a mental patient might say, or in a in a way of a crazy person would talk, and he talks through his teeth, like his character talks like this and delivers every one of his lines to his teeth. Doesn't matter, kick out your fucking tongue. And it doesn't make him the most easily understandable of Cage's performances, but you know, he's doing like this voice, which is another thing that Cage, you know, likes to do. He really gets into sure. his characters and you know, he really takes it to that other level. We find out that Cage is Joe's uncle's bodyguard or right-hand man or just sort of number one goon kind of because he essentially cage gets the high sign from a guy at one of the food stores and says all right this guy's fine you can bring him upstairs talk to his uncle and he's just there whatever needs to be done for joe's uncle uh whatever uncle lou needs done cage is right there whether it's answer a phone call whether it's take joe out for a night in the town whether it's go collect some money from a person that owes him fifteen hundred dollars Cage is there and ready to help whenever needed. Yeah, I almost feel like it's the like alternate version of Joe, right? They're like parallel versions of each other, like good and evil sides of the coin and stuff. Like this is his uncle's equivalent of what Joe's dad had with him, you know? Like this is his conning buddy that they go around and like try to find Mark. So I like that if Joe and Cage's character and Cage plays a guy named Eddie, I like that if Joe and Eddie are two sides of the same coin, not only is Cage playing the Joker, but he's also kind of playing Two-Face. Yeah, and, and Michael Bean looks a little like Harvey Dent did in The Dark Knight, right? He's got like the, yeah. the blonde flowing hair. And so when Cage uh, is sort of like, I know who your uncle is, like I work for him, this and that, immediately off the board, questions in my mind, is this Joe's cousin? Are they related somehow, you know? Uh, ultimately, no, they're not related. But yeah, I started just immediately, just needed to know more about Nick Cage in this movie. I want to know everything about his character in this movie. I want to know where he came from, how he got started, who he's related to. He's just a guy there to do some side work, some side con artist work, and really just fly off the handle. Like, that's all the characterization we get for him, and it's really all we need, and he's just full tilt cage in this movie. Yeah, he's even wearing sunglasses the whole time, very much like Vampire's Kiss, you know, and and his character goes there at moments, right? Like, he gets to his alva point where he's off the chain, and, you know, he's just super expressive. At one point, he pulls those sunglasses off, and, like, he's squinting so hard, like, his character always wears these sunglasses at all points in his life, not just when he's on screen, that when he takes it off, even just to indoor light, he has a light sensitivity. It's just like a real weird quirk, and I, it, it's great. And so he introduces Joe to his uncle. Were you surprised at this? But Joe's uncle is his dad's twin brother. Played by the same actor, played by James Coburn. Were you surprised at all? I mean, what were you thinking? That, I mean, the first thing I was thinking was, oh, this is his dad's kind of like his dad faked his death, and now he's like pretending to be his brother that his son never met. 
I don't know. I mean, I wasn't surprised. I think part of that comes because I was looking on IMDb for Cage Connections before the movie started. So I knew that James Coburn played two people. I didn't think it was sort of nefarious. I didn't think he faked his death. I just thought this was, a, you know, a twin brother. But it does catch Joe off guard, right? Like, he's not expecting to basically see his dad sitting in the chair when, when he turns around to look at him. This is pretty much the only time up until the end that you get a sense that he's grief-stricken about shooting his dad and that whole thing that happened that made him leave town, you know? And uh, seeing his own uncle be a twin shocks him and sends him into the chair and cage has like a, a response looks like you've just seen a ghost friend and so after they have their introduction after joe meets his uncle lou uncle lou says hey eddie why don't you take joe out on the town for a little bit and cage gives him a big thumbs up and then we go to head out to the night on the town but first cage has to swing by his girlfriend's place and of course he has this beautiful girl because he always has a beautiful girl in all of his movies but as we learn a little bit later, things aren't necessarily what they seem between Cage and his girlfriend. Also, I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, Eddie had time to change his outfit. Very He's now wearing a black and white tuxedo with a gold bow tie and cummerbund, if I'm not mistaken, something to that yeah. effect. Because he's getting, you know, they're going out for the night, so he's going to pick up his lady. They decide to do sort of like an impromptu con job. Well, now that we're all one big happy family, what do you say we have some fun time, family fun? Sure. What's the scam? Little pigeon dropping. You think you can handle it, friend? Just tell me what I have to do. You pick up the dropping. It looked like I had to pay my dues by wilding with Uncle Lou's flunky. Fucking fuckers fucked! Well, at least he was a lively fellow. And they go to a bar... The bartender at this bar is Talia Shire. It's Cage's aunt. It's Adrian Balboa herself. They run the scam that they ran in Better Call Saul. It's that, hey, you know, in Better Call Saul they had this coin, and this one it's a bracelet. They artificially drive up the value of this little trinket. Maybe you left it at the restaurant. No, I'm sure I had it in here. Now, would you lose something? No, we're fine. Maybe, maybe I did leave it in the restaurant. Well, I just said that before. What's the matter? Fuck, honey. Listen. My wife, uh... <clears throat> my wife's a little drunk, and uh, it's kind of embarrassing, but she's lost a very special bracelet tonight, and, um... I mean, it's worth a lot to me. So... If you should find it, if you could call me at this number. Uh, uh-huh. Could we hurry up? And uh, I'll give you $500. Joe walks into the phone booth, comes out holding the, the bracelet, and then sells it to Talia Shire, the bartender, for 200 bucks. And so they basically turned, you know, a 4 or $5 bracelet into 200 bucks, and she calls the number to get her reward number disconnected. I just couldn't believe like how incredibly naive the bartender character is. Like I don't care who's playing him. <laughs> it's like this person's first day on the job. Like you never like she's so enamored with this bracelet. Like she sees absolutely nothing wrong with this situation whatsoever. I mean Cage does sell it. You're absolutely right. Like there's no excuse for this woman to be that gullible, but I guess it's just to show in the movie that all three of them, that Cage, Joe, and that Diane are all really good at selling the con, getting a quick buck, and they can sort of pull one over on anybody, even somebody who should be 
on high alert. Yeah, that's a good call, and it also shows that even though they all pretty much just met each other, that they, they sort of fall in sync immediately somehow, you know, at least <laughs> just for the convenience of this sequence anyway. So after they have this little night out of town, they do the pigeon drop scam, we find out that Eddie and Uncle Lou are sort of testing Joe to see, like, what he can do, because, I mean, he's, he's family, so they, they want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but they want to see just how good of a con artist he is. And so then they go to a strip club, right? That's, like, the next stop. Cage says, hey, that guy over there, he, he owes Uncle Lou $1,500. He says, hey, go get the money, and then he heads outside to hang out with Diane in the car, and he takes, like, a little vial of cocaine, and, like, it looks like he's just going to do a little bit at first, but then does so much cocaine. Like, he just, like, everything is just manic and over the top. Where's Joe? He's mincemeat. Maybe he's going to put his head on a platter. What are you up to, Eddie? I'm not getting off. I'm not getting off. Jesus Christ, you know you're disgusting with that shit. I'm not getting off. <laughs> It's just like this guy just does drugs like all day long that by the end of the day, you know, he's just his tolerance is so low. And he looks up and outside the strip club is Michael Bean is Joe along with the guy who owed Uncle Lou $1,500, and they're, like, hugging. They look like they're fast friends, and he comes back, he's just like, got the money. He's like, how'd you, how'd you do that? I, I haven't been able to get that money for months. Yeah, we should also mention that the guy that owes him money, I think he runs the strip club joint, too. He's called Baby, because he's like a 300-pound guy, you know? And Michael Bean goes over, and he's like, you're Baby? And the guy's, like, sucking on a lollipop, like a blow pop. What's better is that he asked one of his girls to give him a lollipop, and she, like, pre-licks yeah. it before what she gives it. What is that about? I don't he's know. like, I don't like no dry um, lollipops, baby. Another little familial connection is that Renee Estevez, Charlie Sheen's sister, plays a character named Baby's Babe. I don't know if she was the one who licked the lollipop, but she's in Baby's harem of strippers and beautiful women. Okay, your Estevez connection theory just gained a little more weight with that. I was not aware that there was a sister in the family or, you know, Joe goes off, like, back to his mission. It's all still the same day he got to L.A., too. Like, it's yeah, a very like busy early day. in the morning, he arrived on the bus and went to that outdoor... It's like a, it's like a, it's like a yeah. piazza in, in Italy. It's just like an Italian square. With and then he went out with Cage for a while, and then they went out to the strip club, and now he's gonna go sort of, like, play detective. He starts, like, snooping around Uncle Lou's office looking for clues to the cake. He's trying to figure out what this cake means. He's trying to figure out the relationship between his uncle and his father and sort of why it went bad. And he comes to the realization that it might have had something to do with his mom. He thinks at this point that maybe both brothers loved her and because his dad married the mom, the uncle, out of spite, went away, went moved to California, and like, hasn't talked to the dad Yeah, since. she's definitely the cause of the rift between the brothers. How exactly isn't clear, but this at this moment, like the voiceover kicks back in. You know, it's pretty heavy at this part. I thought about the two brothers and what could have driven them apart. Then I found the picture I saw in my father's bag. This time it wasn't ripped. There was my mother standing between Pop and Uncle Lou both holding her like bookends. I gotta tell you, it gave me a chill. It's the cake. My brother took the cake.
Did my mother have something to do with all this? Was that why Lou was torn away from my pop's photo? I didn't know it then, but that photo was the hook that would send me deeper into the shadows, squinting for the truth. At the beginning, I was hating it, but now I'm kind of going with it just because of how crazy this movie is slowly. You know, it just gets crazier and crazier. Like, as soon as Cage is introduced, I'm like, all right, all bets are probably off, you know? Voiceover is working in sort of a funnier way now. I mean, it has, like, that Blade Runner feel to, you know, the original voiceover to Blade Runner. Like, it, it's, like, right. that bad to me. But, like, now I'm sort of, it's growing on me just in the context of this movie. It's not, like, offensively bad, but it's just... It's cheesy. It's like he's not putting any inflection in the words. He's just sort of saying things. And it's just driving the plot along because the screenwriters, Christopher Coppola and this guy, Nick Villalonga, who was in the Godfather movies and I guess just sort of became friends with the family, I guess they didn't know how to sort of tell a story. And so they opted for the cheap way of just going through easy, lame I'm reminded of Red Rock West and and how well that movie pulled off a lot of things this movie's trying to pull off, you know, and... and one way I think it succeeds this movie is by it doesn't have not only doesn't it have voiceover but it's got hardly any dialogue in it uh, so this movie should take a cue from that movie so after Cage starts snooping around he goes back to his hotel room right and Diane is there or where yeah, she's put Diane? there and she's pulled the Laura Flynn Boyle move from Red Rock West so she shows up and she tries to seduce or put the moves on Joe and yeah. we're not really sure why and, and we see that Joe carries a locket with his mom's picture but it's like she's she's like a young it's like a young picture of her it's everything's really weird and she starts to kiss Joe and he pulls away and it's like oh like he saw through this con You know, whatever she's trying to do, he thinks that she's putting one over on him. He also doesn't want to offend really kind of his only sort of friend, I guess, in Cage, that he knows he's with this girl, and so he doesn't want to put the moves on his wife, or on his girlfriend, I mean. She just sort of continues to act heartbroken, and then he gives in, and they prepare to get compromised. She says that she doesn't sleep with Eddie, but they're dating. It's not very clear exactly what the extent of their relationship is, But maybe she's just there to sort of keep him relatively even? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm I'm still sort of fuzzy on her role at this point. And when she says she's not sleeping with Eddie, I was like, that's weird. Who is she sleeping with? Like, what is her purpose? And we do find out they squeeze her into the plan somehow by the end of this movie. But she's definitely doing like the yeah innocent little girl she's almost like the girl version of joe which is why i think she plays him kind of well you know like she ends up sort of tricking joe because they're running the same game you know what i mean like they they're the same character yeah. when they con people you made this point and i think it's 100 percent accurate that she like the three main characters that joe that diane and eddie are all basically the same person they're all just doing things a little bit different like joe is sort of right down the middle Diane is female Joe, a little bit more seductive, and Eddie is just crazy Joe. But they're all doing the same thing. They're all, like, pretty good con artists. They're all just trying to put one over on each other to get to their end game, whatever that may be. And this is still the same day, so we don't even know what they're going to get up to. You know, like, even at this point, it's been, like, 45 minutes, and there's really, there hasn't been, like, an Ocean Eleven type, like, here's the plan for the big score type scene. You know what I mean? Like, they're just still setting these people up. They're more concerned introducing us to all these characters than letting us in on the plot and i think that's because the plot isn't very thick it's, it's a very thin plot and if you sort of know about the plot i think we don't learn about the plot and this is sort of giving the movie a lot of credit 
we don't learn about the plot because Joe doesn't learn about the plot until the very end, and so we're kind of kept in the dark as he is. But also, if you, if you don't want to be generous about it, you could also just say, well, there isn't much of a plot. One way that they find to fill the time is by shooting what seems like a four or five minute sex scene between Joe and Diane. It's edited and it's shot in a way that, like, it, there, there's more care and more attention paid to this scene than the rest of the movie. It's like Christopher Coppola was like, all right, I don't care really about the whole movie. I just want to see Sarah Trigger getting naked and making out with Michael Bean. And there's so much time spent on the scene. It's like zombie level skin. It reminded me of the room. Yes, the yes, reason he yes, made yes, yes. The movie, you know, <laughs> like so because he knew he could get like a naked girl on film or something. But you're right; it just dwells on them. You know, I don't know. It doesn't. <laughs> it's very. By the end of it, I'm glad it's over. Let's just put it that way. You know, normally sex scenes, I don't mind that they go on, but this one I was getting a little uncomfortable with. So the next way this movie figures out how to waste some time is that it's Uncle Lou's birthday. What felt weird about this scene to me is that the scene could have worked if it wasn't Lou's birthday. Like, it almost felt like they wrote it that way, and then somehow over through a rewrite, or I mean, maybe, I don't know, that's assuming they rewrote any of this movie. Uh, it, like, it was turned into a birthday scene, but it's just very superfluous. There's no reason it needs to be his birthday. It never comes up. Uh, that means that Joe shot his dad like a few days before his birthday. Like, it's just, it's very weird. I I feel like the whole reason for the scene is that that actress who plays Blanche is just like this adorable, very pretty woman. She's only in the scene, as far as I remember, and she's just crazy and really into bringing him the birthday cake and making him blow out the candles. And I feel like she's friends with Christopher Coppola in some regard. He's like, I'll get you in the movie, and I'll give you way too big a part. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It feels like a, a friend role, but you know, this movie needed actors. You know, you got to get them from somewhere. I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, she she almost reminded me of like Betty Boop. She had like that helium voice going on, like almost like Harley Quinn. So I just it was kind of a funny contrast to see like James Coburn, who has like this great deep radio voice. You know, it's like an awesome voice. Oh, uh, well, you know, he could right. be like a Dark Lord of the Sith with that voice, and, and then his wife in this yeah. movie is like this high helium Betty Boopy type talking lady and you know <laughs> so maybe it's what just like comedy right <laughs> it's their version of comedy I guess but our version of comedy oh, comes in the next up. scene where Cage goes back to the strip club he finds out that the money that Joe got from Baby was not actually Baby's money that that was just Joe's money that he wanted to prove that he was good at his job and so he took $1,500 of his own money and said, hey, I got this from Baby. Look how good I am at my job. And Baby's like, hey, sounds like someone's coming for your job, man. You better watch out. Yeah, Cage is, like, very fragile to begin with. He already senses infringement on his turf, right? When Joe's coming into town, Joe's much more stable. Joe's related to Lou. You know, he already kind of sensed that he might be on the way out. And this is just confirmation. He's been conned. Someone pulled one over on him, and he just loses his shit. I'll be there. Oh, fucking summer long, sugar. Oh, summer long. What's your problem, boy? I thought we were settled. We are with that, baby. There's nothing to worry about. What the hell are you bothering me for? Well, baby's a little cranky tonight, huh? Yeah. I don't dig looking at your ugly face. Now, your partner, he was a cool dude. Cool enough to get the baby to burp up fifteen hundred. I didn't pay him jack shit. Well, what are you talking about? You cleared your debt. He told me all I had to do was walk outside with him, shake his hand, 
and I was even. Are you telling me that was his fucking money? <laughs> Somebody's after your job, boy. <laughs> I bet he even stole your woman. <laughs> Crazier than he was at any point in Vampire's Kiss, which is saying something, because Vampire's Kiss was like full crazy cage, and he goes above and beyond. It's pretty remarkable where you think you've seen someone hit their high mark, you know, and then you just see them, they just vault right over that wall, you know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) he didn't just like overshoot himself, like he overshot it by a mile, he turned it so far up. But it was amazing. And maybe the world's longest fuck on screen. I think we've used this phrase before in Cage Club, but this is really Cage turning into 11. Like, we thought that we had seen him maxed out, and he just goes to the next and level. And he keeps it there for, like, the next two or three scenes, right? Um, he's He just goes out to the alley where he's he's parked his car in the alley. I love that. Like, it's the only car out there. And he's wide open to attack. And this guy, like, attacks him. There's a, a guy with a fake beard that's sort of been in the background of a couple scenes. Have you noticed him? I noticed him on the bus once. He was, he was on the bus. I think he was in one other scene. And the camera just, like, hovers on him, but they never explain it. They never show why he's there. It turns out that he's just there to kill Cage. And I guess it might have been Joe would have sent that guy to so he could get his job. But I don't think that Joe would have. I really honestly have no idea. Like, Cage's character has an obsession with Sam Peckinpah. Like, he uses Sam Peckinpah right in, in one of his... When, when he says his name sometimes, oh, right? I think he says it to the stripper. Money. Money. <laughs> <laughs> Like, this guy attacks Cage outside, and he looks like he's going to kill him, but then Cage stabs this guy in the leg, opens his car door, puts this guy's head in the car door, slams the door on it several times, pulls him out, holds a knife to his throat, asks, yeah, who sent you to kill me? Bro. Guy tells him, Sam fucking peck and paw. Let's go! Let's fuck go! causes him to slit the guy's throat instead of more interrogation, so I just don't know what the neuroses is behind that. It's so weird, and that's just another example of this movie not explaining itself, that it's just this crazy guy doing something crazy and then getting killed because he ran into somebody even crazier and, than and I, uh, Man, when he put the guy's head in the car door, you know, that's like, I called that going full kingpin because <laughs> like the kingpin did that at one point um, in the Daredevil show. That's just like brutal you know this guy is just an animal and you know and then in the next scene he's still like at that level right he comes bursting into diane's house and he's like someone's trying to kill me someone's trying to kill me and he has like another like vampire's kiss level freak out i know you smoke cigars babe particularly louis brand eddie it's really not what you think 
Shut up! Shut the fuck up, man! <laughs> oh, you have fucking no man! What am I a fucking retard man? Am I a fucking retard? Oh! I know what this is. Luke trying to stop me out because of his crazy little nephew being around. Well, vive la fucking French man! <laughs> I bet I was the last person you were planning on seeing tonight, doll! Get out. I'd really love a reason to blow you away. So get out. The big thing there is he finds the cigar, and he thinks yeah. the cigar belongs to Lou, and that she's boning so Lou. Because he he's like, who, who smokes cigars? And she's like, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. And he goes to confront Lou, thinking that Diane is sleeping with him. <laughs> this is so good, because he's like telling Diane, he's like, you're doing it with Lou. And he's like, you know, humping the bed, like, Lou, Lou, Lou. Like, <laughs> just going nuts. And then he tries to strangle Diane, and she pulls a gun on him, and he, he's got yeah. like his arms out already to strangle her and she pulls the gun and he just like oh like totally gives up immediately like man you caught me (laughs) it's hard to keep these scenes straight because it's about eight minutes of the movie and it's just crazy 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 cage in one place going from one place to the next furious at everybody and just his world is collapsing around him and he's just trying to figure out what the hell is going on yeah i mean i feel so bad it's like the worst day of this guy's whole life right like this guy this stranger comes into town and just turns everything upside down on him and then in the next scene he goes to confront lou at lou's office lou's like putting money away and then uh, eddie's sort of hiding in the shadows crazy fucking world we live in captain jack eddie what the hell is this you filthy double crossing little fucking filthy double crossing filthy fucking goddamn fucking filthy little prank what the hell has gotten into you, man? What is this? Oh, what the hell has gotten into you, Eddie? What is this? Oh, that's really good, Dalu. That's like a poker face, like a fucking statue! Pick a card! You're cracking up? What is it? What the hell? Pick the fucking card! And Eddie, I, I, I don't know what the hell has gotten into you. In a couple of days, you and I are going to make a bundle of money. Now, now don't... Money. Eddie, come on, don't blow it now. Put the gun down. Show me the joker. Oh, come on, put the gun down. Just show me the fucking Joker. Well, holla fucking Louie, man! The Joker's wild! You trying to take me out of the game? Let's squeeze in your fucking nephew, huh? Well, who's sitting behind your fucking desk now? Me! I'm behind your fucking desk now! Me! This is about Joe? Oh, God. Eddie, after, after all we've been through together? Come on, man. Bullshit. Bullshit. Jesus Christ, you stupid fucking crackhead! Come on, what is this? Uh, what the hell is going on here? I'll show you a fucking hot Eddie! And they go down to the kitchen, right? Is that he brings Lou down to the kitchen? They're in his sort of office above the food court. And Cage brings Lou down and he fires up like a deep fryer and he's got it bubbling with hot oil and Joe shows up and there's a confrontation between them. He's about to kill Joe. Like this is his 
breaking point. This is Cage's breaking point. Here's the guy that basically ruined his life, that stole his girl, that took his job, and he's right there, and he's in Cage's hands, and Cage is holding him over the fryer, trying to dunk his head and kill him in this fryer. What a fuck! What a fuck! Huh? We fucked now! We fucked now! But instead, Joe fights back, grabs Nick Cage's hair, and, like, just, I guess, to sort of gain leverage, and then rips it off, and it's a wig, <laughs> and Cage is bald. It's like, it's like, what? <laughs> so crazy. What was that about? The only thing I could keep thinking, though, is, like, after watching the special features, with the bald head and the mustache, he looks like his brother who directed the movie. It's like his doppelganger. But that was so shocking, man. And, and, and like, it depowers him, right? Like, Eddie loses, like, all of his power because he's got nothing, no vanity to hide behind anymore. And that's when Joe, like, takes his head and and deep fries him shows him who the hothead really is and he pulls him out of the fryer and he looks like sort of the the crypt keeper from tales of the crypt like he like he he's just he's bald his eyes are bugging out it's ridiculous it's amazing it's the best death that he's had so far in cage club i mean it's better than his machine gun killing in the cotton club it's better than the stake to his heart in vampire's kiss this is the ultimate cage death scene But the problem is there's still 40 (laughs) minutes to go in this movie, and I just don't care anymore because the story is terrible. I'm only here for Cage, and when you kill your best character with 40 minutes to go in the movie, I just don't care. Especially when he goes out looking like Freddy Krueger. You just want him to, like, come back and start haunting people's dreams for the rest of the film, you know, and pulling, like, these elaborate deaths on them while they sleep. I'm with you, man. You know, I've said it before. I check out when he does, right? Like, (laughs) no more Cage, hard to pay too close attention. The film does try to compensate for the lack of Eddie. You know, Eddie is just, like, he was just such a wild card or a joker, if you will. Like, no one else's performance, you know, ever really got close to matching that you know no none of these realities kind of lined up appropriately and the movie will will introduce a few more colorful characters to try and keep you engaged but it kind of feels desperate like without cage's character when they introduce uh charlie sheen as like a pool shark and they introduce a guy whose arm is literally a pair of scissors. Without Cage's character, they'd both be like these incredible, like crazy movie villains. But now that we've seen Cage come and go, it's like, that's that's pretty cool. Like, it's sort of, it takes all the wind out of their sails because Cage was just so over the top that these guys who were just like pretty over the top just yeah, can't Charlie match. Yeah, plays a strange guy, right? He's like a very well-groomed, sort of devilish-looking character. I don't know if you noticed, he's wearing a snakeskin jacket. So, yeah. you know, wild at heart. And they're playing pool, so, I mean, just like Racing with the Moon and just like a whole bunch of other movies and just like his tattoo in Amos and Andrew. But, like, they're playing pool on a Corsair, which is a pool table with no pockets. Uh, and they're playing, they're not playing, like, eight ball or nine ball. They're only playing with three balls. So, I'm uh, right? I'm not really sure what the name of their game is, but... I think that's just to show just how eccentric Charlie Sheen's character is, right? He's like, I don't even need pockets to play pool, man. Like, I'm that nuts. It's some weird thing, and they're playing $1,000 a point. And this is the start of the, the, the long con to end the movie, right? Like, he loses a lot of money, and then instead of offering the money, he offers up his watch. 
and the watch has real diamonds, and then so Charlie Sheen gets him in touch with the diamond yeah. guy. That's the whole point of this, right? It's to sort of get to the next yeah, phase the of the scam. Yeah, the idea was that Joe's supposed to lose to Charlie Sheen, and then when he can't pay up, he's to be introduced to the ultimate Mark, the guy that they're going to run the full con on, and that is Mr. Scissorhand. Suddenly, this has become like a science fiction film, if you ask me, because like he goes to meet this guy, and it looks like the set of like a spaceship from the 50s you know like i was like what is happening now it's like they took like a bond villain reject and they put him on a 50s spaceship movie set and then built this movie around it like none none of it fits with each other and none of it makes any sense it's delightfully weird and if it wasn't for cage this would just be incredible but because cage was cage in this movie this weird scissor hand guy is not nearly as you know terrifying or funny or crazy yeah, as it I could feel have like been. with Charlie Sheen, they didn't go too far enough. And then with this guy, they went way too far in the wrong direction, you know, <laughs> like by giving him like a robot arm or whatever is going on with that and just becomes cartoon now, you know, I don't know. It just now I think it is a joke. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it reached this point where instead of me thinking that they really tried, like it got to a point where they're like, let's just sort of like screw around now. We find out that the final con is essentially the same con as the beginning of the movie. That this this Mark is this diamond guy, this diamond appraiser, and he has all this money. He's going to buy a load of diamonds. That this diamond in Joe's watch is the real deal. It's this great, beautiful, flawless diamond. And he's like, I got a lot more where that came from. Let's set up a deal, and we're going to swap your cash for these diamonds. Yeah, so it's the exact same con as the one that opens the movie, right? Like, that's the idea, is that they're going to pretend there's a raid and scare off Scissorhand, right? Like, that's what they're hoping for? It's literally the exact same thing, except instead of cocaine, it's diamonds. Everything else is the same. They're going to scare Scissorhand off, he's going to (laughs) drive away, they're going to have the the money, and they're going to have the diamonds. And then they're going to go on with their life, and I guess do the same con with somebody else in the Nazi Yeah, because this con takes like nine guys, you know? Like In the opening, I was like, there's like nine guys involved, you know? It's like, did they just think Reservoir Dogs? Like, I don't know. Or, or Oceans movies and stuff. So like, there's a, yeah. even a scene where one of the guys is Mickey Dolnez from the Monkees, for crying out loud. I couldn't believe that. But there's a scene where they're like, assemble the crew, and it's all those guys at the food court throughout the movie that we see who've just been like, hanging around. It's like the Grifters Avengers. And they they get to the actual con spot. The crux of the con relies on Joe shooting his uncle with a blank, him getting squibbed, and scaring off the scissorhand guy the same way that they scared off the guy in the original, in the beginning of the movie. Except he freezes. Like, he has flashbacks of killing his father. He can't pull the trigger on this guy. And so instead of him shooting with a blank... Some other guy, right, comes and shoots him with actual... Yeah, one of the Scissorhands guys shoots Uncle Lou because Joe's like, he's got a wire, he's got a wire, and he hesitates. So another guy shoots him. So he was so afraid to, quote-unquote, kill or, you know, fake kill his uncle that he let him get killed by, (laughs) actually get killed by someone he was with. And the cops come out, you know, all the fake cops are like, freeze, 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 and there's a huge shootout. And pretty much all of Scissorhands men, including Scissorhands, die and get chased off. And then, out of the shadows, comes Joe's father, not actually dead, just pulling the (laughs) longest con in the history of long cons, 
going coast to coast, using his son as a way to get back at his brother and to get this ultimate score of diamonds that he'd heard about or he'd known about for yeah, a while. Yeah, I think it came, it's like $2 million worth, uh, and he wants to like split it with his son, and he's trying to explain that your uncle stole your mother away, or did your uncle killed your mother like in the heat of passion, because if he couldn't have them, or, they used to fight over the mom and she died. And he's like, it was your uncle's fault, so like, he deserved to die, this and that. But Joe just like, that moment he's decided man like Grifton it's just not for him he has a gun drawn on his father and his father's trying to explain to him like you know we could be together we could be the ultimate team he shoots open the briefcase with the money right and the money sort of goes everywhere in the in the closing voiceover to end the movie Joe tells us that memories are worth more than any take from any con and that his life experiences are worth more than these $2 million he like, could have This had. is what's so crazy. It's like, first of all, what's crazy is there's like a merry-go-round in this warehouse for no reason. Working. <laughs> it working works. merry-go-round. And Joe turns it on and his dad like doesn't like merry-go-rounds or starts getting dizzy. And I don't know, it, it's like this weird form of intimidation. And yeah. And, and when he shoots <laughs> open the money, you see his dad, the greed, takes over and he goes to pick up all the money. And Joe just walks away. Doesn't even, he doesn't do it. He's like, yeah, you could have your two million dollars and you know all your money and and your fast life like for whatever it's worth to you me i'm going straight it's i guess the ending of this movie deserves that he learned a lesson from connie he's not going to be a con man anymore because he was just conned by the ultimate con man in the ultimate con and he walks away and the movie ends it's so weird and doesn't make sense and doesn't fit anything. It's happened to us a couple times, you know, most notably with Birdie, I believe. <laughs> the, the very last shot yeah. of that film sort of turns the whole thing around on you. And this is just another example where there's a sharp turn at the end of the road that doesn't really take you anywhere, but it's just there. And, and that's it. It's just, oof. I think this might become an instant guilty pleasure, if you take my meaning. Like, I, I just think, like, yeah, I'm not sure what they're going going for exactly you know you're right in a sense when you said that scene felt like cinemax or so because this feels like one of those movies without the sex you know (laughs) like just all the boring parts or even you know to a porno for that matter it's just all of the interstitial scenes between the sex happening it's just that level to me i I think people you know should check it out if not for anything just for cage in this movie is insane i'm just is he ever going to reach this plateau again you know dramatically comedically uh, this way i i dying to find out. I think he's going to come close, but I can't see... And I mean, when we talked about Vampire's Kiss, I guess we could have said the same thing, but I can't see him ever exceeding this. But I mean, I guess he still has more levels that he could just turn on and bring himself to new heights. And I'm very excited to see what's coming in the near future for Cage. So next time on Cage Club, we have Guarding Tess, which I know literally nothing about. Deadfall was the the, the last of three movies he did in 93. He then does three movies in 94... And then starting in 95, it kicks off this incredible, incredible run of Cage movies. So these next three movies, Guarding Tess, It Could Happen to You, and Trapped in Paradise, I know nothing about any of them. I feel like they're all lighter fare. They might not be, but I feel like they're all going to be sort of more pleasant stuff before we get to some real depressing things and then real amazing action. Yeah, I'm not familiar with Guarding Tess. Uh, it looks to me like a comedy. I think these next three are sort of more family-friendly cage, if you take my meaning. Again, sure. they're in the realm of PG, you know, and uh, more lighthearted. I think it closes out that 
era for him for a while. I don't think he'll return to that for a while. Like you said, we, we go full-on action coming up soon. So go to cageclub.me. You can watch all the movies that he's done. He's done a lot of real sort of dark, heavy stuff up to this point in his career. So go to cageclub.me to see all that stuff. You can listen to all the podcasts, read all of our write-ups, follow us on Twitter, rate and review us on iTunes, all sorts of fun stuff. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. We'll see you next time on Cage Club. Thank you.